Hear now the word of our God from Leviticus chapter 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, she is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother, that is, you shall not approach his wife, she is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law, she is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife, it is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations... I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. With Since we've passed chapter 16, which is the heart of not just the book of Leviticus, but also the heart of the whole Pentateuch, we are now in the second half. And so actually, we're seeing many of the same topics that we saw in the first half of Leviticus. So in chapters 11 to 15, when it went through the, the clean and unclean animals and the various skin diseases and the various questions about uh, how one becomes unclean through sexual contact, uh, those same themes now come back around, but 
now more on the question of holiness, not just clean and unclean, though there's still lots of clean and unclean language going on. But as we think now, there it was mostly about what makes you ritually unclean and unable to come into the presence of God. Now it's still interested in those questions, but also moving towards questions of, of what we might call more ethics, though quite frankly, the clean and unclean language is very much an ethical question for Israel because if you want to enter the presence of God, if you want to be clean and, and enter the worship of God, you have to be thinking about these things. But there's a way in which now that we've, now that we've come to the Day of Atonement, now that we've seen what God is doing in bringing his people to himself, these questions now come up in in broader, what we would, broader ethical terms and not just the narrow who can approach God, now it's actually dealing with more uh, questions of, of what, what, we, uh, what we would recall, call ethics more. Now, um, we saw last time in chapter 17 the proper approach to eating meat, and now in chapter 18 we talk about sexual relations. You think about these are two of the most basic human desires, food and sex. And these are the two things that Leviticus looks at right after talking about what it means to enter the presence of God. I should also mention that Leviticus 18 was the center of a controversy in the old school Presbyterian church in the early 1840s. Uh, I have a whole chapter on that in my dissertation if you're really interested. But... It came up in, on the January 5th of 1842 when the Reverend Archibald McQueen was suspended from the gospel ministry and from the Lord's Supper by the Fayetteville Presbytery in North Carolina. Why? Because he had married the sister of his deceased wife. His wife had died, and then he married her sister. Now, you might wonder, what does that have to do with Leviticus 18? Well, Leviticus 18 in... Verse 18 says, You shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. And you might go, Well, but that's that. She's dead, so what's the point? Well, this is, this is where the, uh, at that time, the Westminster Confession stated that such marriages were incest. Uh, the case went all the way to the General Assembly where the assembly finally agreed with the presbytery after a long debate. But 40 years later, the confession got revised because, as the debate showed, there really was not a strong biblical argument for the, the position that the confession took. Uh, and so, really, many, many argued in 1842. They were like, this verse isn't talking about what happens after she dies. This verse is talking about what happens while she's alive. Now, the reason why there was a debate is because there were some who wanted to use this verse to show that the Bible condemns all polygamy. The problem is, it doesn't. That's not what it's saying. It actually, it is saying, while her sister is still alive. And so, basically, it's saying, you can't have two sisters for wives at the same time. And if you're like, wait, what about Jacob? Right. What it's saying is, that was a bad idea, let's not do that again. Um, so, in a, in a simple way of putting it. So, but Leviticus 18 is part of this whole section in chapters 17 through 20 where God sets forth the meaning of holiness from an ethical standpoint. Ceremonial cleanness, as we saw in chapters 11 to 15, is only part of the picture. God also expects his people to be holy as I am holy. And so Leviticus 18 sets forth God's commands for sexual purity in the context 
of Egypt and Canaan, looking at here's the, here are the practices of Egypt, here are the practice of Canaan, and, and God saying, don't do things the way they do things. There are problems in the way they think about sex, so we should not think like them. And so the Lord says in verses 1 through 5 uh, that Israel is not supposed to live like Egypt and Canaan. Three times in these five verses, God declares, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Israel must not think of Yahweh simply as one God among many. They must not think of Yahweh like the other gods. This refrain, I am the Lord, will be repeated 40 times in the next nine chapters. We're going to hear a lot of, I am the Lord. What's the the reason why you should do this? I'm God and you're not. I mean, in a a nutshell, that's going to come up rather often. It's also an an echo of the prologue to the Ten Commandments because where where did the Ten Commandments start? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am the God who saved you. So when God says, I am the Lord, that's, that's saying, I'm the God who saved you. I'm the God who delivered you. I know what is best for you. I know the way that you should walk. And because he is the one who has delivered them from slavery, he is the one who is giving them a home, he also calls them to live the way that he says. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, Paul will quote this in Romans 10 when he speaks of the righteousness of the law. Also in Galatians 3, when Paul will say, The law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Twice, Paul will quote verse 5 to make a sharp contrast between the law and faith. So, what is, what is Moses doing And then what's Paul doing? Well, some have argued that when Paul refers to the law or the works of the law, he's only referring to the sort of the ceremonial law. But as you can see in verse 5, here Paul is talking about these ethical aspects. These, uh, Moses is talking about this, this this is talking about what God commands Israel, how they should live morally and, and how they should live before God. So, Keep that in the back of your minds. We'll come back to Paul later. But it's important to see how in the context of Leviticus 18, verse 5 is saying that the one who obeys God's moral law, the one as expressed in this condemnation of incest and adultery and homosexuality and bestiality, the one who obeys God's moral law in their sexual ethics will live long in the land. That's what, that's what Moses is saying here in 18.5. So let's, let's look at these particular cases and what is going on here. Uh, Moses uses some language that we don't use very often anymore, this language of uncovering nakedness. Uh, something we've seen already in the way that Moses is talking about sexual ethics in cleanness and uncleanness. He's, uncovering nakedness is not talking about marriage. Uncovering nakedness has to do with any sort of sexual relations, any sort of, uh, which could include marriage, uh, but the, the sexual practices of the Canaanites and the Egyptians would allow these sorts of things. Uh, marriages between brother and sister were rather common among the pharaohs, uh, but God forbids Israel to follow that path. The general rule is stated in verse 6, None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am Yahweh. And then as the details are given, it's clear that any close relative by blood is automatically excluded. 
the, the father is excluded because it would uncover the nakedness of your mother. Because the picture here is that of when, two, when the two become one flesh. I know we're used to thinking of that in terms of marriage, and it's true, it happens in marriage. But you don't have to get married to become one flesh. You become one flesh by having sex. That's how you become one flesh. So therefore, this is, is so basically to have any sort of sexual relations with somebody who is already one flesh with somebody that you're connected to. Just if you just think about the picture here, if you become one flesh, you know, take take the, you know, the Paul's example in First Corinthians of the man who has his father's wife. Well, in the Mosaic context, okay, you're. Your father is one flesh with this woman, and now you're one flesh with this woman. That means you're now one flesh with your father. Ooh. Okay. So, I mean, there is a certain amount of creep factor that goes on here, but, uh, but basically the picture is that becoming one flesh is something that happens whether you're married or not. So therefore, we're not talking about marriage in this chapter. We're talking about sexual relations. And that's where becoming one flesh with anybody that is one flesh with anybody that's connected to you is a problem. So that's, that's the basic point. Stepsisters, uncles, aunts, daughters-in-law, sisters-in-law are all forbidden either because they are themselves too close in their blood relation or because some, basically somebody whose seed is already connected to you is one flesh there. And so there's this... Uh, the key to understanding these laws is thinking about what this, what, what becoming one flesh is all about. Adam and Eve covered their nakedness immediately after their sin. So you do not expose the nakedness of your close relatives. Rather, you cover their nakedness. Think about the story of Noah, how he allowed himself to fall asleep drunk and uncovered. And his son Ham did not cover his father's nakedness. But Shem and Japheth did. Likewise, since sexual relations create a one-flesh relationship, to sleep with a close relative dishonors those whom you are coming in indirect contact with, you might say. You're, you know, if it was your father's seed and now your seed, it's, you know, now you're, you're, it's mixed up, would be the simple way of putting it. Part of the reason for the complexity of these laws is because divorce was so easy in those days and early death was so common. I mean, if you think about it, prior to the 20th century, it was very common for, uh, as, as women would die in childbirth or surrounding those times, very common for a man to have several wives in a row and it's also very common for men to die, whether in battle or at sea or whatever. And so then a woman might have several husbands. And so you have these mixed families. That was just very common in, you know, in, in those days. And again, it's happened in our days as, as well. And so it would be really easy to argue, that, oh, well, my, you know, my father's third wife's daughter from a previous marriage, uh, we could get married, right? But God says, no, if she's raised in the same house, then she's off limits because... She's part of the family, as it were. Um, Verse 11 says that even your father's wife's daughter is your sister. Your father's wife's daughter, who's not your father's daughter, but your father's wife's daughter from a previous husband, that she is also not to be approached sexually because she is your sister. Um, Verses 17 and 18 give us 
a couple other cases. Uh, verse 17 forbids a man to have both a mother and her daughter or granddaughter, labeling that depravity because they are close relatives. The, the picture there being to have both a mother and her daughter, it's basically, it's a, simil- it's a similar situation of you're putting your seed in a place where it's quote-unquote already been. I mean, if you think about it with the mother and the daughter, it's like, no, that's, that's again, this theme of mixed up comes back to play. Um, and then verse 18 has this line about a man not, should not have two sisters at the same time. Um, so why did the Presbyterian Church, why did the Westminster Confession originally exclude that relationship? Uh, it seems obvious to us that verse 18 simply condemns marrying two sisters at the same time. But, and part of this has to do with the, with the question of polygamy. While, while God had established the proper pattern of monogamy in the garden, the, you know, there's not a formal condemnation of polygamy yet. But that's where many just could not bring themselves to believe that God had ever permitted it. And so Colin McIver, the, the prosecutor in the McQueen case in 1842, said that the, the, the prohibition against marrying two sisters, he, he said... Sister here isn't referring to any sort of biological thing. A sister simply means another woman who's sort of, sort of the idea of a, of a sister wife who just having a second wife. So McIver argued this text is simply forbidding all polygamy, period, and that's the only point it's making. But that's where when you, when you, it just, when you look at the text and when you look at the practice of Israel based on this text, Leviticus 18 doesn't say that. Um, it, it permits a man to marry his deceased wife's sister, um, and, but also it also would permit a man to marry multiple women so long as none of them are close relations. Now, part of it is, when you start to think about, when you start to think about what this chapter is doing, you might start to say, hmm, how do we think about this for today? Because is this really saying that polygamy is okay? And is that something the church should be saying? What's going on here? Well, God's concern for Israel was to maintain sort of sexual purity by avoiding incest. This is the main point of this opening section in chapter 18. And why is God forbidding this? Because Israel must be different from the nations. Israel must be holy. And the key to these laws is to follow the seed. The seed must be protected. You are the seed of your father and your mother. Your seed should, got, should not get mixed up with your father's seed. Actually, there's a, a line in Deuteronomy about not sowing the field, a field with two different kinds of seed. This is all going along the same theme. So both of your parents' close kin are off-limits. And so your father's wives, their children, their spouses, their siblings and their spouses, your grandchildren, and by implication your children, are off limits, as are their spouses. And since your seed is in your wife, you should not mix your seed with her mother or her daughter, since you become one flesh with those with whom you have sexual relations, you may not become one flesh with others who have, been, who have been one flesh with your family seed. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait a second, what about leveret marriage? Because there's actually, in Deuteronomy 25, uh, if your brother dies 
without have ha- having children, you are commanded to take his wife and to have children with her. So what's going on there? Well, actually, the point of leveret marriage was to continue your brother's line. So actually, it's actually very much in keeping with the principle of Leviticus 18 because the point is, your brother hasn't had a, a seed yet. And so they're a child yet. And so therefore, you need to make sure that your brother's line continues. And since your seed is so close to his, you can make that happen through marrying his widow and continuing his line. And the resulting children are his children. That's, which, actually, when you read the book of Ruth and see how things go there, that's even more fun. But at any rate, um, but the point of leveret marriage was to maintain the seed. So it's actually the same principle that Leviticus 18 is making. But then in verses 19 to 23, this focus on the seed helps us understand what God is doing in this section where he now moves to talk about what I call varying degrees of depravity. Um, Verse 19, forbid sexual relations during a woman's period. Verse 20, forbid sexual relations with your neighbor's wife. Adultery in general. Verse 21, forbids offering your children to Molech. Now, usually commentators take that to mean uh, child sacrifice. But some ancient commentators thought that it referred to dedicating them to the service of Molech as temple prostitutes which was also a common Canaanite custom. So, and that would certainly fit the context of this chapter. So there's, there's debate over, is this, is this talking about offering them in the, in the fire, or is, it, or, or is in the fire to be translated as by fire? Um, so that's where uh, the question of, is this, are they being dedicated as temple prostitutes, or are they being killed? Uh, it could go either way but it would certainly fit better in this, in this chapter if it's talking about temple prostitutes. Verse 22 forbids homosexuality, and verse 23 forbids bestiality. But as you look at these, these, these verses, you see an increasing degree of depravity as you move through the language of the, of the, of the section. Chapter 18 makes careful distinctions about what things deserve what label. Sexual relations during menstrual uncleanness renders you unclean. And for that matter, adultery renders you unclean. Now, you might say, wait, what? Just unclean, that's it? Now, we'll see in chapters 19 and 20 that there are moral penalties as well. But here, Moses is only interested in how these activities relate to the sanctuary. And so, to put it simply, adultery, as we'll see in the next chapters will receive the death penalty. But if you don't get caught, you're still unclean. You cannot approach the sanctuary. You cannot approach God's holy place. So, but then offering your children to Molech, well, that profanes the name of your God. He has placed his name upon you and your children. So to offer your children to Molech, whether it means child sacrifice or as temple prostitutes, is to profane the name of your God. And then lying with a male as with a woman, well, that's an abomination. This is seriously mixed up. If you think about what we saw a few weeks ago when we were talking about sort of proper function, I mean, 
your seed is not supposed to go in there. That is a place for waste to come out, not for seed to go in. So what does it mean for something to be an abomination? This is the first time this word has been used in Leviticus. And it will be used here also uh, in Deuteronomy to refer to things that are entirely unacceptable and uh, completely uh, sort of outside the realm of uh, of what is appropriate. I mean, just think about the distinctions that Moses is teaching us. We, he, he's teaching us about the holy and the common. And then within the common, there's the, the clean and the unclean. And within the unclean, there's, there's just the ordinary unclean, and then there's the detestable. And these are sort of gradations of that th- as things that are clean can become holy, holy entering into the presence of God, things that are detestable are things, you know, the unclean moving away from the holy place. So where does the abomination fit? Well, if the unclean is unfit for entering the presence of God and the detestable is never going to fit, the abomination is an important category of its own. The abomination remains entirely unfit, but only so long as it remains as it is. Deuteronomy 7.26, Moses warns Israel not to take idols into their homes, not even to covet the silver and gold. And Moses says, you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. The abomination must be destroyed. The, actually, when you think about what is to be done with the, sort of the, the gold and silver from the, the idols of the nations, well, it's actually, it, winds up, it winds up devoted entirely to the Lord. And it's not to, so that's where the, the things, you don't take them into your home, and you, rather all the things that are, are given to the Lord. So that when an action is referred to as an abomination, the abominable action must be destroyed. So the, it is an abomination for two men to lie together sexually, or two women for that matter. Moses doesn't mention that here, but Paul does in Romans 1. And lying with an animal is perversion. Uh, the root of the word perversion here is the word, is the word to mix. Perversion is a fundamental mixing up of the natural order. And so these, these three terms, you know, profaning the name of your God, abomination and perversion, all express different aspects of the unclean as it passes over the boundary into death. The Lord is holy. To profane his name, to treat his name as common, is to pass from life into death. To embrace abomination is to depart from life. To follow perversion is to cross the boundary into death. And the chapter concludes with a warning that these sorts of sins were the reason why God was driving out the Canaanites before them. Verse 24, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Notice that there are two basic categories of action here. Here in 24 and 25, we're talking about the unclean. In 26 to 28, we talk about abominations. So, to be clear, Moses is not saying that all the actions of chapter 18 are abominations. Sexual relations between male and female remain in the order of creation, 
So while sexual relations between male and female render you unclean, and in some cases may get you killed, it remains in the order of creation, and so it remains in the, act, in, in the realm of the common. We, we think, again, think back to the, the holy and the common. Unclean part of the common, definitely, but it's common. Whereas sexual relations between male and male, female and female, or between human and animal are in the realm of abomination or perversion and handing over your, your, your children to be temple prostitutes is profaning the name of your God. These things are outside the realm of the common. They are in the realm of death. And so the Lord concludes, for everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. And if Israel falls into such sins, he says that the land will vomit you out. Verse 28. These, these customs are utterly forbidden to Israel. And, and God warns, if you follow those paths, the land itself will, will vomit you out because it, con- it contaminates the land when we turn against the way that God has called us to live. So how do we make sense of these laws and our relationship to them? Uh, Some have taken the approach that, well, since these laws are the only place where incest is condemned, therefore just they remain in force just exactly as worded. But that logic runs into difficulty when you try to explain why Leviticus 18 is binding, but other parts of Leviticus are not. How do you decide which you get to keep and which you get to throw out? Others, like Benjamin Stanton at the 1842 General Assembly, come a lot closer. He argued that as part of the Levitical law, these laws were abrogated with the coming of Christ. Under this view, the reason we condemn incest is because the common moral sense of humanity is revolted by it and because there's a long legal tradition that condemns it. It's basically a natural law argument. And while there's some truth in that, he doesn't quite go far enough the other direction. I'd suggest that Paul actually gives us the solution. Hopefully that's true. Uh, But turn over to Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Because I mentioned earlier that Paul quotes this passage. So maybe Paul actually was thinking about this. I think he was. Romans... Chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end, the goal, the telos. And then Paul contrasts the righteousness based on the law and the righteousness based on faith. 
literally the righteousness which is of the law and the righteousness which is of faith. In other words, Israel tried to attain righteousness through law-keeping and failed. The Gentiles did not pursue righteousness at all, but have found it through faith in Jesus Christ. So listen to verses 5 through 8 of chapter 10. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Leviticus 18.5. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, some take Paul's use of, of Leviticus 18.5 to say, ah, the Mosaic covenant was basically a covenant of works, and so this is, this is, of course they failed. The problem is that the righteousness based on faith also quotes Moses, also quotes from the law, from Deuteronomy 30. But Paul interprets Deuteronomy 30 in the light of Christ. Paul reads the law in terms of who Christ is and what he has done. If you read Moses apart from Christ, actually you will find a covenant of works. That's all that's left. But if you read Moses in Christ, then you see a covenant of grace. Because it was never possible in the first place to find a righteousness that came by the law. You have to miss the point of Leviticus 18.5 in order to make it teach a works righteousness. But Paul's point is, that's what Israel's done. Israel has misunderstood the point of the law. Israel thought that Leviticus was saying, ah, if we just do what God says, then we'll live long in the land, and that's end of story. And yes, Israel was called to be the son of God. They were called to be holy as God is holy. Those were serious commands. But the covenant that called Israel to perfect obedience contained at its own heart the means of grace to deal with sin. And the problem was Israel was never going to actually do what God called Israel to do. Israel was never going to engage in perfect obedience. That would only come when our Lord Jesus Christ came in our flesh and and did what we had failed to do. And so that's why it is only... And that's why ever since the days of Moses, the righteousness of faith declared what Paul says in Romans. What does it say? Verse 8. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. This is, basically Paul is quoting Moses and saying the righteousness of faith is what Moses taught. And that, now, the righteousness based on the law um, also is what Moses taught if you misunderstand Moses. If you understand Moses correctly, you would believe the righteousness of faith. Because, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's actually the point that we we see when we talk about the Passover and what would have happened to the Egyptian who put the the blood on the doorposts. Their child would live. What happens to the Israelite who doesn't put blood on the doorposts? Well, their child's going to die. It wasn't about, are you a certain ethnicity? 
He was about, do you believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The law was never able to provide a way of living, a way of, of living by works. The law has always pointed us to Christ. So then what do we do with Leviticus 18? Well, the same thing we do with the whole Mosaic Covenant. We read it in Christ. And this means that, yes, the, the judicial laws have expired. These are among the judicial laws. Uh, our confession puts it this way. To them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now, further than the general equity thereof may require. So the specific statutes of Leviticus 18, together with this, the particular seed-based rationale, are not binding on all nations. After all, verses 28 and 29 make it very clear. These laws are designed specifically for Israel's situation as the covenant people, a situation that no modern nation shares. But it's not the case that, oh, since these laws have expired, therefore, who cares? Because... These, we have to remember that the general equity of these laws remains in force. Now, equity is a concept that we've largely lost sight of in modern America, but the basic idea of equity has to do with justice. What are the principles of justice that underlie the statute? Probably every single one of you has encountered a situation where a particular law really didn't apply to that situation. It may be a good law. But in this situation, the enforcement of that law would produce injustice. The speed limit says 35 miles an hour, but your wife is in transition and it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Okay, we're going a little faster than 35 right now. The strictest judge is not going to say, well, that was... No, I mean, he's going to say, okay, I understand the circumstances. Just don't do it most of the time. No law has ever been designed to cover every conceivable exigency. Even God's own law was not designed to cover every single possibility. God never... I mean, this, when you read the statutes of, the, of, of Moses, I mean, did you know that the U.S. Code regulating the sale and distribution of broccoli is longer than the five books of Moses put together? I mean, <laughs> all the laws... Uh, all the legal parts. I mean, it's not longer than the whole... But if you take all the, all the statutes that Moses wrote down, all the statutes end-to-end -end is shorter than the U.S. Code regulating the sale and distribution of broccoli. God did not try to cover every single possibility. What he gives are these... This is why the principle of equity is so important. Because what is the point of the law? What is, what is the thing that is right and just and good? And our confession rightly says that it's not, it's, you don't just point to the statute of Leviticus 18, you point to the principles of justice. Incest is wrong. Adultery is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Bestiality is wrong. Handing your children over to be temple prostitutes or burned in the, burned in the fire to Moloch, whichever way you take that, it's wrong. These things are not the way it's supposed to be. And the fulfillment of the law in Christ does not abolish the principles at the heart of the law. And by the way, that also helps us understand, what do you do with polygamy? Because it's like, okay, well, where's the statute? Where's the, where's the text, the thus saith the Lord, that demonstrates that polygamy is wrong? It's awfully hard to find that. Because 
it's not, there, there is no, thus saith the Lord, polygamy is wrong. I'd suggest it's actually similar to slaveholding. It's plainly an evil that is a result of the fall, but it's never defined as inherently sinful. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 require that elders be monogamous, the husband of one wife. So if you ever want to be an elder, you better only have one. And also it's very clear that from the beginning, Jesus says, marriage was designed to be between one man and one woman. And so any man who desires to reflect the love of Christ and his church should only have one wife because Christ only has one bride. Therefore, no Christian man may become a polygamist. That, that's just, but why doesn't why don't we just is it, why not condemn polygamy as a whole as a sin? Well, what do you do when a man becomes a Christian and he already has three wives? There was a missionary once who was asked that question. What do I do? And he's like, Well, God says you're only supposed to have one wife. So the man was like, Okay, I will. I hear you. Came back the next week and said, I'm ready, I'm ready to be baptized. I only have one wife. Oh, what did you do with the others? I killed them. Uh, what? What did you expect me to do? I loved them. I couldn't bear to see them become prostitutes. I mean, I wasn't going to hand, I mean, what, they had no future. So if I loved them, the only thing I could do, and if I, if I was going to follow Jesus, I had to kill them. It's like, okay, we, this is not a helpful way of dealing with this, with a situation. So this is where actually what, I mean, and there are still places in the world where polygamy is extremely common. And how do you deal with it? It takes generations to undo the, the, the cultural customs. And if you tell them, well, okay, since you have multiple wives, you can never become a Christian. Well, that's a problem. What if they believe in Jesus? Well, then you, then you come to Jesus and you do what God has called you to do in following Christ. He may never become an elder, that's very clear. But he must live faithfully in the condition in which he was called. And, you know, in this respect, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that U.S. law forbids polygamy. Our, our laws generally forbid first cousins to marry. That's, good, that's a good thing. Um, but since we, we don't believe that the statutes of Moses were designed for the United States, there would be differences between our statutes and theirs. But the question is, what is the equity of the law of God and how it bears on our principles? It's where it gets more and more challenging as our culture goes further and further astray because the, the principles of justice that Scripture teaches are no longer being enforced and we now have laws on the books that are contrary to the equity of what Scripture teaches. But it's important for Christians to remember, if, if, you, if you want to go into law, you know, your, your, your conscience must be trained in the Word of God to understand the equity of God's Word. If you don't understand the biblical principles of, of justice and wisdom and equity, then you won't be able to frame just laws nor enforce them fairly. And if a nation has foolish laws and unjust enforcement, ooh, well then we're back in the case of, Deut- of Leviticus 18.24, because God says that he judged the nations because of their violation of the natural sexual order. The nations were committing adultery, incest, homosexuality, and bestiality. The nations were offering their children to their gods. And for this, God destroyed the nations who lived in Canaan, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. 
because of the wickedness of, of the Canaanites, God brought a picture of the final judgment upon them. I mean, there's a way in which the, there's a uniqueness to the conquest of Canaan. But what, what you see in the conquest, when, when God sends his people to destroy Canaan, the, the Canaanites, what he's saying is, this is what sin deserves. This is what rebellion against my ways leads to. And he's using this as a picture for the whole world to see that the conquest under Joshua is a picture of the conquest by Jesus. Because in the end, every knee must bow the knee to to King Jesus. Every individual, every household, every nation must repent or face the same judgment that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah, the same judgment that fell upon the Canaanites, the same judgment that fell upon Israel when Israel failed to do what God said, the same judgment that fell upon Jesus when he took our sin and misery upon himself. If you don't accept what Jesus did, and if you don't humble yourself before him, then you will get what happened to him. Because what happened to Jesus? God's last day's wrath and judgment was poured out upon him. And because it was poured out upon him, it was therefore it will not be poured out on any who believe in him. But if you don't want Jesus, then you'll get the wrath that Jesus took on behalf of all who believe in him. Earthly judgments will come and go, but there is a final judgment in which no one will stand except those who have found the righteousness that comes by faith. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us because we we too often forget what you have taught us and we turn away from your paths. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy and forgive us and cleanse us and help us to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, the one who took upon himself the wrath and curse that was due to us for sin. Lord, help and have mercy upon all those who wander in darkness that they might see the the glorious light that shines in the face of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. May they see in us your gospel lived out. May they hear from us your gospel proclaimed that the good news of our Savior might go forth to the ends of the earth, that those, that those who have been beaten down and buffeted by the, by the waves and winds of, of, of this age might find a place of refuge in, under the shadow of your wings. And may we be that place for them that they might find comfort and peace in the midst of the storm. Lord, help us and give us wisdom as we walk before you that we might, we might know how we can love you and, and love those around us better. And as we come to this, your table, we pray that you would continue to do what you have promised, that you would feed us and nourish us and strengthen us with the body and blood of your dear Son. For we pray in his name. Amen.